This morning, uh, we have a guest speaker. His name is Sean. He's uh, from Decatur, Alabama, all the way here to preach to you guys. A little bit about Sean before he comes. Sean uh, is from L.A. initially and uh, moved to Decatur as a teenager. Sean uh, has a rough background. Uh, He's been public about uh, his mother's drug addiction that uh, he dealt with throughout his life as a child. Uh, Sean himself ended up in the streets, uh, was a drug dealer, running the streets, typical street stuff. And at 18, is that right? 18 years old, God saved Sean, converted him, and uh, gave him the grace to believe. Uh, Sean, you did some Christian rap for a while, right? He's a rapper. Do you still rap? Maybe a little afterward during, the, during a hot dog, over a hot dog, a little couple lines. We'll see. See how the spirit moves. Uh, Sean uh, spent four years after he was converted felt called to the mission field. He spent four years in the jungle in Peru. And uh, you can talk to him about that later. Very, very difficult time. His uh, youngest baby almost died while they were there. Sickness, malaria. Uh, he came back to the States. He's, uh, long story short, now pastoring a church called Sixth Avenue Church of God in Decatur, Alabama. And, uh, and he is with us today to bring us a word. Some of you have seen a documentary called American Gospel as well. In 2013, uh, Sean wrote an article, I think it was 2013, I just looked at it, wrote an article uh, on the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel and how it almost killed him. We'll talk about that after the service today. Um, but anyway, all that to say that sort of through a number of different things ended up becoming a documentary. There's a documentary called The American Gospel, which features Sean and, uh, uh, and also a couple in his church, um, the Burgers, who um, we can chat about afterward as well. So anyway, with no further ado, we're going to chat with Sean over hot dogs later on today. But let's hear from the word of God, brother. Good morning. Can you guys hear me? Is this microphone on? Good? No? Ah, there it is. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 6. I'm glad that Joel shared my testimony for me. Uh, Not super happy about the Christian rap part. I was hoping that would just kind of disappear into the internet, never to be found again. Yeah, Uh, I got to tell you, as we were singing the second to the last song, uh, I was sitting there just trying my best not to come undone crying. Uh, I'm just so encouraged to be here with this church this morning. I mean, to hear God's word read, to hear God's people singing God's truths back to him, to to hear a prayer of confession. Uh, The brother who led the service led it so well, so full of conviction. Uh, yeah, honestly, to tell you guys the truth, I've been pretty discouraged. 
And uh, being here this morning, it feels like the Lord brought me here specifically to be encouraged by you guys. So thank you for having me. So uh, I've been preaching through the Lord's Prayer in my church. And uh, the text that we're going to be looking at this morning is the final petition in the Lord's Prayer. There are six petitions in the Lord's Prayer. And this morning we're going to be in the final one. Lead us not into temptation, uh, but deliver us from evil. Uh, This is really a a two-for-one. In Alabama, we would call it a twofer. You see what I'm doing there? Yeah, two-for-one, because it's really lead us not into temptation. That's one request, and then deliver us from evil, which is a second request. Um, If you preach through this consecutively, if if you read through and spend time in each one of these petitions, you'll notice that the fifth petition right before this is Jesus teaching his followers to pray, forgive us of our debts. Okay, so we have a debt to God that God alone can forgive. And so it makes sense that after he teaches us to pray that God would do away with our sin debt, he would then teach us to pray how to think about our relationship with sin in the future. Forgive us of our debts is how we should pray to God in relation to our sins in the past. Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. This is how we should orient ourselves in prayer in relation to sin for the future. If we are a people who have, by the blood of Jesus, been forgiven of our spiritual indebtedness to God, then we must also be a people who, by the power of the Holy Spirit, avoid sin and evil at all costs. Amen? So, uh, Matthew chapter 6, I'll go ahead and read aloud. I'm going to read the whole Lord's Prayer just for context, and then we'll dive into the text. Here we go. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen. Father, we pray that you would uh, be with us in a very special way this morning as we listen to your word. We know that your word is the only thing that can give life to your people. Your word is the only thing that can continue to strengthen us and sustain us for uh, that which you would have us to do. So we pray that you would work powerfully through your word this morning. God, please uh, work despite me and my weaknesses. And please uh, remove any distractions from our hearts and our minds this morning. Please help us to be uh, mindful of that which matters eternally, which is what you have to say to us to prepare us for eternity. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. All right. I wonder, uh, how do you see yourself? We all struggle with insecurities some of us more than others, but I think most of us tend to see ourselves as stronger than we really are. We tend to see ourselves as people who are more virtuous than we really are. As Christians, we tend to see ourselves as people who are more full of the fruits of the Spirit than is probably true. We anticipate that the new diet won't be any problem. I got it this time. We say that the budget, we're definitely going to stick to it, you know? We're definitely going to stick to this budget. We're going to stop going out to eat for sure. 
We say that the new workout routine is going to be doable, no problem. You know, so uh, I do CrossFit. I couldn't go five minutes without telling everybody in this room. Uh, and uh, as I'm preparing a workout, you know, I'm looking at my movements and what I'm going to do, and I'm like, yeah, I think that's doable. And it's not until I'm, you know, a quarter of a mile into this two-mile finisher run that I have planned at the end of the workout that I realize that my future version of myself was not quite as in shape as I anticipated that he would be. <clears throat> when we experience the rude awakening that our future selves are not as strong-willed, as disciplined, as virtuous, as holy as we thought that they were going to be, we can tend to feel a little bit sheepish, right? Another failed juice fast. Come on, white people. Huh? Another failed daily Bible reading plan, right? Another resolution to get back running, the, the solemn oath to stop eating, whatever it is. Uh, we just, we, we brush it off with like a little self-deprecating joke, Right? Ah, oh, man, I'll get them next time. And then we just move on with the rest of our lives. But what happens when we overestimate ourselves spiritually? What happens when we think that we're more spiritually mature than we actually are, when we think that we're stronger than we actually are, when we think that we're more prepared to handle temptation than is probably true? What if we're not the superheroes that we really think that we are in our mind's eye? What if we need to be rescued? The reason why I ask this is because in this petition that the Lord teaches his disciples to pray, I think he assumes that his disciples will be perpetually in a position of weakness when it comes to their relationship with sin and temptation. I think the easiest way to understand this morning's text is like this. It's to say that Jesus is teaching us, his followers, to ask God that he would keep us as far away from sin as possible. And then if we do find ourselves in sin, if we do fall in temptation, if we do find ourselves in the grip of evil, to pray and ask that God would deliver us from that evil. So with that in mind, I've got two points for you this morning. It should be super easy. Point number one, avoiding temptation. And point number two, deliverance from evil. One of the most famous accounts from the life of Jesus, uh, we read it this morning. Uh, thank you for the brother who read. Your brother, you read really well, man. Uh, it's the account of Jesus' temptation. In the Gospel of Luke, we're told that Jesus went into the wilderness where he suffered hunger and thirst. He was there for 40 days. Now, what you may not know is that the Spirit of God himself led Jesus into the wilderness for the sake of temptation. Listen to the words of Luke as he describes this scene. He says... And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. Now, if you know the story, you know that Jesus is victorious uh, over Satan. He's victorious over the temptations. He does what Jesus always does. He comes out on top. This account of Jesus is, uh-oh, we good? All right, okay, okay. I don't want to end up on YouTube, you know? <laughs> Stage collapse at a church in Baltimore. Uh, 
the account of Jesus' temptation is, is so powerful, right? And this is, this is one of these stories that's taught in Sunday schools and it's, and it's preached in sermons like, hey, listen, this is how you need to fight temptation, right? You use God's word when you find yourself in a clash with Satan and temptation is trying to lead you away from God and into sin. And all of that's good and it's right and it's true and that is how we should think about this. But what I find to be interesting is that after this, event that Jesus went through when he's teaching his disciples how they should pray in relation to temptation, he does not teach them to pray that they would be better handlers of God's word in the face of temptation. He doesn't teach them to pray to ask God that they would be more bold or more resilient or tougher, stronger, fiercer, whatever it would be, wiser in this battle with temptation. What he teaches his disciples to pray is, God, keep me as far away from temptation as possible. Lead me not into temptation. You know, I, I, uh, I look at Jesus and what he went through in the wilderness. And when you read the account, it really seems like it was a genuine battle, a genuine struggle. And then I can just imagine Jesus sitting there looking at his disciples, his weak, pathetic disciples and just going, they don't have a chance. I, I know what it's like. I'm fully God, fully man. It says that I was full of the spirit when I, you know, I was full of the spirit when I went through the temptation. I know that these guys don't stand a chance. So as I teach them to pray and, and how they should, you know, prayer also teaches you how you should think about things, right? So as I'm teaching them how they should think about their relationship to temptation, I'm going to teach them that they're automatic mindset needs to be, just keep me as far away from it as possible. Now, as a little bit of a brief aside, you, you should remember that God may lead us into situations where we may face temptation, but God himself never actually tempts us, right? Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, he couldn't be any clearer. He says it like this. He says, God cannot tempt. Temptation is what happens when our evil hearts, with their wicked desires, encounter opportunity for sin. So the temptation that we experience is what happens when uh, life in a fallen world meets sin in our hearts. They come together and, and temptation blossoms. Now, Jesus didn't have sin in his heart, and I'm not about to walk down that theological trail, right? We're not going to do that. But maybe if you guys do what we try to do in my church, where like afterwards at lunch you try to talk about the sermon, maybe you guys can talk about and ask how Jesus' temptation was similar and dissimilar to our temptations. That might be good fodder for discussion. Okay. But back to the, back to the text. The point is clear that, uh, excuse me, Scripture is clear that the Lord sovereignly directs our steps, right? Proverbs 69, a man plans his course, but the Lord directs his steps. And so it may be that the Lord in his perfect will, for his particular reasons, according to his divine wisdom, will lead us, like Christ, into the path of temptation. That may happen. As a matter of fact, it, it probably will happen. But we have to remember that Jesus teaches us that we should still pray that God would lead us away from temptation. God may lead us into temptation, and that's his prerogative. That has nothing to do with the way your heart should be oriented to God in prayer in relation to temptation. You should be praying, God, lead me away from temptation. Yeah. One of the main reasons why Jesus teaches us to pray this way is because he knows how 
weak we are. It's true that we're God's children and that as God's children we've been bought and redeemed. We're filled with the Spirit and we do have power. But the truth also remains that the Spirit of God lives in the same body as uh, our old self in many ways. The flesh is still very much alive. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul who saw Christ on the road to Damascus, who was sovereignly called by God to lead God's people into this new age of salvation history, he told the Romans when he was writing them, listen, I still have to battle with my flesh. The stuff that I want to do, I don't always do it. And the stuff that I don't want to do, I do find myself doing that. And if you've been a Christian for longer than five minutes, when you read that in Romans, you're like, yeah, that's me. You know, I didn't want to do it, and here I am doing it. I hope that everyone in this room is willing to acknowledge their spiritual weakness. The most dangerous place in the world for a Christian to be is a place of confidence in their spiritual strength in relation to sin, right? And if you've been around young Christians, you know what I'm talking about, right? They, oh man, they feel so confident. They're so strong. You know, I got this. Joel knows you don't got it. You don't got it. Uh, There's this dude named Jonathan Edwards. He has an amazing illustration that he uses for this, and I'm going to try to paraphrase it for you. He says, in relation to sin, our temptation moves us ever closer towards the edge of a cliff, one that we are inclined to fall off of at any moment into the abyss of death and ruin. Because of our wicked desires, we are not only standing near the edge of a cliff, but we are also standing on a steep incline, slanted down towards the black abyss. So, young Christians, it's worse than you imagine. You feel safe, you feel strong, but you're actually near the edge of the cliff. And you're not just near the edge of the cliff, you're on a slanted ground where you're probably going to slide off into that cliff. And then he goes on to say, moreover, we are not only standing on a steep incline near the cliff's edge, but we also stand on slippery ground where we may lose our footing at any moment. That ain't me. Okay. Okay. This is how we ought to see ourselves in relation to sin. I think if we understand this reality of our weakness, then it makes perfect sense that Jesus would teach us to pray this way about sin. It just, it all makes sense. I'm about to drink water that was forced upon me because I couldn't bring my Diet Mountain Dew on the stage. Mm. Uh, cognitive researchers, people who study, you know, the, the life of the mind, they found that when we think about our, ourselves in the present, we use the part of our brains that deals with facts. But when we think about our future selves, we use the parts of our brains that deal with imagination, with things that aren't real. And that makes sense. And when we think about our future selves in the midst of temptation, right, we tend to see these imaginary versions of ourselves as bulwarks of truth and mighty warriors against temptation. We see ourselves as strong and indomitable and immovable. But the truth is, is that we often crumble under the weight of sin. In the same way that we crumble two days into a new diet. The same way that we stop the Bible reading plan as soon as we hit the second half of Exodus. 
the diet starts on Monday is the same kind of lie as, yeah, I can be alone with him. Yeah, I'm, I'm strong enough. I don't need any software on my computer. I'm good. I got, I got it under control. I can think of no better illustration of this kind of spiritual false confidence than the Apostle Peter. Poor Peter. Jesus told his disciples that they would abandon him in his darkest hour, right? You will all fall away. You know how, Jesus, uh, how Peter responded to that, right? Peter was like, <laughs> okay, Jesus, listen. If everybody else leaves you, I'm not going anywhere, right? All the, I mean, he says this in front of the other disciples, right? If the rest of these bums, if the rest of these cowards, you know, the rest, whatever it is, you know, I, don't, I wish I knew some Baltimore slang. I try to throw it in right here. I don't I got nothing, man. He says, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And you remember how the story ends, right? Not only does Peter deny Jesus, but he denies him three times, swearing, calling down curses on his own head. It says, but he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of who you speak. He went from, Jesus, I don't care. I will die for you no matter what to, I swear to God, you can kill me. May God strike me dead from heaven. I don't know this guy. So how do you see yourself in relation to sin and temptation? How do you think you'll handle that moment of weakness when it finally arrives? Do you think you're going to be like David staring down Goliath? Or do you think you're going to be like Peter, quivering, shaking, terrified in the garden, weak, crumbling? Now, you may be wondering, Sean, what, what kind of Christian life is this? This weakness. Where's the victory? I mean, isn't there some kind of power that comes along with being a Christian? Am I just supposed to spend the rest of my life in a hole, terrified that sin's going to come around the corner and snatch me up and carry me away? Well, no, friends. That's, that's not at all what I'm saying. The, the Bible is true when it tells us that we have the Spirit of God living in us and that we do have victory over sin and that our ultimate victory is in Christ and it will be one on the other side. But there's real power right here, right now. Ephesians 6.11 tells us, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. I think about myself in my battle with sin and I pray that when I do find myself in a dogfight with temptation, that I will be able to take the sword of God's word and lop off the head of any enemy that wants to keep me out of heaven. But you have to remember that just because we are equipped to do battle does not mean that we, we need to be eager to seek it out. Right? Uh, some of the most dangerous people walking the face of the earth today you know, people who can, like, kill you with their bare hands. You know, they'll take a pin and MacGyver it and, you know, shank, shank, you know. Uh, these are the people who are most reticent or least likely to pursue combat. They're the people who go out of their way to avoid conflict, right? Because they know how dangerous they are. Now, we just have to avoid it for a different reason because we know how weak we are. Just because we can do 
battle with Satan. And just because we can wage spiritual warfare doesn't mean that we must. I mean, we, we, have to, we have to temper the reality of the victory that we have in Christ with the fact that we still haven't made it to heaven yet. That's why Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Timothy and elsewhere, says flee. Flee from sexual immorality. He doesn't say, hey, the Spirit of God is living in you. Stand your ground. Tell her to pull her blouse lower. You got this. No. Flee, flee your youthful passions. Paul knows maybe you'll win, but maybe you won't. And your soul is on the line. I do jujitsu. One of the jujitsu, it's all about choking people and stuff and breaking people's arms. And the guy who teaches it, he is like seriously like one of the most dangerous people I've ever met. You know, he could probably take down any land mammal that he comes across. And one of the main things that he teaches his students is even once you learned this, the first thing you should do in an altercation, if you can get somebody off of you, is run. Maybe you'll win, but maybe you won't. And the most important thing is that you make it home to your wife and kids. The most important thing for us is that we make it home to heaven. I think this is why Jesus, at the end of his ministry, took the time to say this to his disciples. This is what he said. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. When Jesus says the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak, what he's saying is, I get it. You know, I see you, Peter. You want to do big things for my name. You want to storm the gates of hell. You want to fight the fight against Satan and his schemes and his minions. And, and I get it that your spirit is willing to do this battle. But I know you. And I know that your flesh is weak. So do you know you? Do, do you know that your flesh is weak? As a young believer, I thought that no matter what, I would never deny Christ. You know, I, I thought that I was strong enough to go back and evangelize my girlfriend. We ended up in the bed together. I thought that I was strong enough to navigate the computer without any kind of protection, and I ended up addicted to pornography. I thought that I could go to the mission field and be in one of the most dangerous places on earth, you know, where they kill people for professing Christ. And I thought I would never deny Christ. Cut out my tongue, pour boiling oil down my throat, you know, any bad thing you can imagine. And now that I've been a Christian for 15 years, I see the 10,000 ways that I've already denied him. And not because somebody was threatening my life, because I was embarrassed at work. I didn't want somebody to think that I was corny. And I denied the Lord. I had to spend some time wrestling with my own weakness before this prayer even could begin to make sense to me. If you're here and you're a young Christian, you may hear people talking about stuff like this and you just can't understand it until you understand it. I mean, you should try to understand it. And that's why I'm up here trying to help us understand it. But it's only after you've failed Christ for the 10,000th time and you've had to look at your sin and shame in the face for the 10,000th time that when Jesus tells us that we're weak, you go, oh, you know what? I am am weak. And then when you pray the Lord's Prayer and you come to the last petition and you say, 
lead us not in temptation, you're not going to just go, and, and lead us not in temptation. No, you're going to go, Lord, I love you, and I don't want to deny you, and I know that you hate sin, and I've already failed you so many times. Please lead me not into temptation. This is not a matter of willpower. It's a matter of self-awareness and humility and a right understanding of the power of sin in our lives. Point number two. Actually, sorry, I have a little application for us here. Uh, In the sermon on give us this day our daily bread, one of the things that I taught my congregation was uh, God may miraculously put food on your plate, He may miraculously put heat in your homes, but the most normal way that God gives you your daily bread is by giving you the ability to work, right? Well, God may sovereignly, like, remove you from whatever temptation you're battling with in any given moment. Like, he may pull you out of the trap house or away from the strip club or out of the bar or whatever. He may close your laptop and break everything inside of you, you know, like that sort of thing. But the most normal way that God helps us to fight temptation is by giving us the gift of wisdom. Okay, you see this personified in Proverbs chapter five, like the first several chapters of Proverbs, uh, the father is talking to his son. He's saying, listen, stay away from sin, right? Stay away from sin. And he says, listen to me, my son, listen to my wisdom. And then he goes on to tell him how to fight sin and how to avoid it in the first place. Now then, my son, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Keep to a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Wisdom says, I've been there. I've done that. I see things that you can't see. Learn from my mistakes. And you can can get this wisdom from any number of different sources. Uh, When I taught this in my church, uh, so we don't have a very big church, so we don't have a lot of children's volunteers, which means we have a lot of kids in our church. And so I just stopped my sermon and I said, I need all the kids. Oh, we got one right here, you know? I said, listen, I need all the kids to pay attention to me if you don't hear anything else. As you grow up, and listen, I got, I got eyes on you. I'm locked in. You better be paying attention, okay? Yeah, you too. Yeah, just because your dad's a pastor doesn't mean anything. Pay attention. Focus. Yeah. Listen, as you get older, you're going to stop thinking that your mom or your dad are like the greatest people in the world, and you're going to start thinking that they're idiots. But the fact is that God has given you parents to channel wisdom into your life. And one of the best things that you can do for your soul's kids is to listen to what your parents are telling you as long as they're giving it to you from the Word, okay? Oh, this is so nice. Nobody in my church ever claps for me. Uh, If you look in the Scriptures, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, that the Corinthians should learn from those who came before them and their example that was laid down in Scripture. He says this, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. And we could keep going. There's a thousand different ways that the Lord uh, can give you wisdom, but you just have to be, we have to be, receptive and willing to take that wisdom when the Lord brings it into our path. So you're getting wisdom whenever the Word of God is open in this church and preach to you. You're getting wisdom whenever you sit down with another believer and they communicate God's Word to you, whether it's an encouragement or an exhortation and rebuke, right? You get it from your parents. Just be willing to receive the wisdom that God has for us. 
for you because it will be an aid to your soul in your battle against sin. And the good news about this is that wisdom isn't something that can be purchased. Despite what Oprah, you know, she's super rich and she claims that she's selling wisdom. But the thing is, is that wisdom is available to anybody who just asks God. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Okay. Point number two, and if I offended any Oprah fans, please forgive me as we move on. Point number two, deliver us from evil. One of the debates about the Lord's Prayer, if you're, uh, <clears throat> if you're reading the Lord's, if you're reading uh, commentary, commentator, uh, help me out, guys. Commentaries on it, right? The big debate is whether or not it's uh, deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one. And without getting into all the weeds on that, one of the things that you see with the best commentators is that they all agree that it basically means the same thing. The theological point is still the same, right? Satan is the tempter, and he is the evil one, right? You see this in 1 Thessalonians 5. He's actually called the tempter. It says, for this reason... When I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. The reason why he has this nickname is because all throughout scripture, this is his thing. This is his shtick. It's his jam. It's what he does. In the garden, who's there to tempt Adam and Eve? Well, Satan. In the wilderness with the second Adam, who's there to try to tempt Jesus and lead him to fall away? Well, it's Satan. We need to be careful not to ascribe to Satan certain attributes that only belong to God, right? Only God is everywhere at all times, right? It's not like Satan is under every rock, behind every corner. Anytime any man, woman, or child is falling into sin, there's Satan, you know, directly manipulating the situation. But the Bible does speak about Satan with a kind of universal language. It makes it seem as if there is some way in which he is involved with sin and evil in this world in any number of different respects. So Jesus tells the religious leaders that they lie because they are the children of Satan. In Acts 17, Jesus tells Paul that he's going to send him to the Gentiles for the purpose of delivering them from the power of Satan. So these Gentiles are lost, and the reason why they're lost is because somehow, some way, they're under Satan's power. When Paul writes to the Corinthians about husbands and wives and their sex lives and marriage, he tells them not to go too long without giving each other their conjugal rights. And the reason why is so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Scripture even uses language to talk about the work of Satan being carried out by his minions, his emissaries. So as Paul talks about his thorn in the flesh, he calls that thorn in the flesh a messenger of Satan. So theologically, then, it makes sense that whether we interpret this verse as evil or evil one, the reality is the same, right? We're either falling into the circumstances of evil, into the hands of evil, or the evil one who is orchestrating those evil things from his position of power. Either way, the point is this. If we find ourselves in the grip of evil, having fallen into temptation... We need God to rescue us. One commentator has said that Jesus doesn't teach us to pray for more willpower when we fall into sin. 
Rather, he teaches us to pray for deliverance. We have to be very careful, my American brothers and sisters. You know, I, I say this to my church in North Alabama, which it's, it's probably more true of them uh, in a special way. We live in a land of prosperity. We tend to be a people in America who think that we're capable of doing anything because so often we do do incredible things. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We work lousy jobs while we go to night school, live off of tuna sandwiches, just so that we can make two more dollars an hour, right? One of my elders came from a trailer park, and now he makes $100,000 a year, and he did it through sheer will of force. He just ground his way up the, the ladder for 20 years. And I used him as an example when I preached this to my sermon, to my, to my congregation. I said, you know, you, you cannot think that your reality, your social and economic reality as an American, is the same thing as your spiritual reality as a Christian. You can't pull yourself up out of sin's pits. There's, there's no bootstraps that are long enough. It doesn't work like that. We think that if we'll fall, we'll just dust ourselves off and get right back up again. It's uh, not controversial at all for me to say that uh, Die Hard is the greatest Christian movie of all time. <laughs> Amen. Uh, hey, I think they're coming out with six and seven now. It's about to go fast and furious. There's going to be 38 movies. If you don't know the story of Die Hard, there's this guy, Bruce Willis, in the movie. He's John McClane, and he's in Nakatomi Towers, and it gets taken over by these terrorists. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, he's got himself in a pretty hairy situation on Christmas, no less. And, of course, you know, he finds himself with no gun against guys with a bunch of guns. And not only does he not have a gun, but also he ends up without shoes. And then after he loses his shoes, his feet get all cut up by glass. I mean, it's just as bad as it could possibly be. But, of course... John McClane gets it done. He finds a way to karate chop the terrorist, get a gun, somehow stop the bombs from going off. I mean, this guy can't be stopped. And we tend to see our lives like that, right? We just maintain this hope that we can just fix ourselves spiritually. We can fix our own sin problem. But I think our, our lives are probably more like the movie Captain Phillips. I don't know if you've guys seen it. You know, this is my ship now, that thing. Yeah, two people. Thanks, guys. It's the story of a, 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 a ship that gets taken over by Somali pirates. And this guy, Captain Phillips, he's, he's a nobody, you know. He's, he's the anti-John McClane, you know. He, he can't do anything. And when he does try to do a little something, the terrorists realize what's happening, and they stop it, and they shut him down immediately. And then at the end of the movie, SEAL Team 6 comes in and saves the day. Uh, we're not John McClane. We're Captain Phillips. We need to be rescued. We need Christ to deliver us from our sin. We need the Holy Spirit to pull us out of sin's pit when we find ourselves there. When it comes to temptation, the question isn't if we're going to face temptation, it's when. And when it comes to evil and falling into evil, the question isn't, are we going to fall? We are. You are going to fall. You are going to fail. You are going to be weak. The question is, what are we going to do when we find ourselves there? 
when Satan has taken us in his hand? Are we going to try to jump out of his hand or are we going to call out to God and ask him to be our deliverer? The whole point of the Bible is that you can't deliver yourself. It's the recurring theme. Everything that you read, every time somebody tries to fix the problem themselves, they can't do it. Adam and Eve are naked and ashamed and they're like, oh, we have a good idea. Let's make fig leaf underwear. And God's like, no, you can't fix your own sin problem. I'm going to fix your sin problem. And so he kills animals and gives them better clothes. Uh, I'm kind of on a weird kick right now. I'm on, a, I'm on this lion kick. You know, I just love lions. They're so regal, you know, majestic. I like to, I like to think of myself now. I'm just kidding. I've got to grow the beard out and the hair. You know, with the, the technology coming along the way it is, you now have these high-resolution images of lions that we never used to have, right, of these, of these lions in the wild. And what you see when you look at their face close up and you see their apex predator eyes and their strong jaws, uh, you also see that their entire body, their whole face is covered in scars. And it's evidence that they live in the wilderness. They're at the top of the food chain. They're the apex predators in the jungle. And nevertheless, their whole body is covered in scars that show that they live in a world that is brutal. I'm not entirely sure what our future glorified bodies are going to look like. But Jesus had scars uh, on his body. And I'd be willing to bet that if you could see our souls when we go to heaven, if you could see all of the scars that sin would leave, you would see the body of a lion just covered from head to toe. And it's it's just evidence that, yes, God has saved us. He has redeemed us. We are these regal new creatures because of what Christ has done. But we still live in a world of the fall. And none of us is going to make it to heaven unscathed. Every single one of us is going to bear the scars of sin. Uh, I didn't grow up reading, but uh, tried to get into it later in life. Started trying to read the classics. There's this guy named Homer. He wrote um, the Iliad. I'm not sure I understood it. But uh, I read the sequel. So, you know, like you don't understand the first half. Maybe just power through to the second half. Uh, And it's called the Odyssey. And it's all about this guy named Odysseus, right? Odysseus just got through fighting in the Trojan War, uh, and he wants to make it home to his wife. And this is a story of him trying to make it home to his wife. In order to do that, he has to get on a ship, and he has to go past uh, the island of the Cyrenes. The Cyrenes are these ancient mythical creatures in Greece that are like half birds, half women. And they were famous for singing and leading sailors to death with their songs. They would cause the boats to go crash upon the rocks. And so everybody knew to avoid the island of the Cyrenes. Well, Odysseus was about to go past the island and somebody told him, here's what you need to do. You need to have wax, wax stuffed into your ears, into the ears of the people on the ship so that you can't hear the siren song. So what he did was he had his, his crew tie him up to the mast of the ship so he could hear the song. And then he had all of them put wax in their ears so that they couldn't hear the song. And he said, just drive past the islands or sail past the islands. And no matter what I say, no matter what I do, you just keep going. And it worked. They made it through. A lot of what I've been doing this morning has been trying to get you to put wax in your ears. Right? Satan is calling you with his sweet song. And I'm trying to tell you 
Don't even give it an opportunity to take root in your heart. Put wax in your ears. But there's another part of the story. There's Jason and the Argonauts. Jason and the Argonauts also had to sail past the, the islands of the Cyrenes. But instead of having wax placed in their ears, Jason had a musician on his ship. His musician's name was Orpheus. Orpheus was the most skilled musician in all of Greece. And so he said, what we're going to do is when we go past this island of the Cyrenes, I want you to play your music. And when Orpheus played his music, the only thing that the people on the ship could hear, the only thing that Jason could hear was the sound of the beautiful song of Orpheus. And it drowned out the song of the Cyrenes. Brothers and sisters, we have to have more than wax in our ears. We also need to be able to hear a sweeter song than the song that Satan sings to us. Brothers and sisters, that song is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In order to fight Satan, you do have to be willing to go hear no evil, see no evil. You have to cut that off from the world. But you also have to be able to open your eyes and look at Christ and let him be the thing that takes captive all of your emotions and all of your desires. Uh, I don't want to date anybody in the room here, but in 1959, there was a song written called uh, I've Only Got Eyes for You. I've only... I'm not going to do it. Okay. Uh, It was written by the Flamingos, you know, and it's about being in love, right? And the idea of the song is simple, right? I'm in love with this woman, right? I'm in love with this man, and there could be 10,000 beautiful women. There could be 10,000 beautiful men around me. It doesn't matter. I'm not looking at them. Why? Because I'm in love with you. We have to have that kind of relationship with Jesus if we want to avoid temptation and if we want to be delivered from evil. We have to have eyes for Jesus and Jesus alone. And it feels almost silly preaching the gospel at this point because the gospel has already been preached so many times throughout the course of this service. I mean, what he was saying this morning, brother, what was your name again? I'm sorry. Huh? No, you, brother, who led this. Eric, when you were talking about, you said this should be the, this assurance of pardon. This should be the happiest time of our service. And I was like, that's right. Why? Because we looked at sin in the face, and then we saw a promise from God's word that sin doesn't have the last word. Christ has the last word. Forgiveness is the last word. And if that's true, if God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to save us from our sins and to bring us back to himself and to take us home, how can we not be in love with him? With that in mind, I think... uh, you should know that when you, uh, when you pray the Lord's Prayer, sometimes you can pray it sort of verbatim. You can go line by line and just say it out loud and, and think it and mean it. But you can also sort of just use it as a structure that can lead you and guide you in your own prayers. So in my congregation, uh, this is what I had us pray together um, after, after we walked through this, this passage together. Lord Jesus, keep us from temptation by giving us a vision of God and his son Jesus Christ that is so big, so beautiful, and so breathtaking that I won't want anything in this life other than you. And if I fail or falter, if I find myself in the grip of sin, deliver me from evil by drawing my heart back to you where there is nothing but beauty and goodness and pleasure and joy forevermore. Let's pray. Father, your word has done its work. We pray that the saints uh, of this church would walk away uh, 
more readily equipped to serve you and to love you and to do the battle that you've called them to. Uh, we pray that as we go back out into the city, uh, that people will see not only a people who have been rescued and redeemed, but a people who are also growing in holiness, a people who love you and hate sin more than anything that they've ever seen or encountered before. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.